This show was first broadcast on Free FM, Hamilton, New Zealand's community access media organisation. For more information on our lineup of shows and the role we play in the media, visit freefm.org.nz. Hi, it's Vanessa from the Fighting Stigma Show on Free FM. Are you a Waikato local? Do you have an idea for a radio show? Do you want to try your hand at being a content creator on Free FM? If so, check out our website on freefm.org.nz or find Free FM on Facebook and get in touch. Historic Souvenirs presents A Cyclist's Intrepid Journeys Adapted from his book Pedal Power Roy Sinclair and his partner Harleko Are seeing her homeland By cycling Japan from top to tail Sleepless nights by firelight A stranger in this town Heard by talking long and Singing songs, I have laid my loneliness down. So long days end with peaceful friends. There is no richer As we near 80 years since Japan's attack on Pearl Harbor in Hawaii, we might remember that the Allies engaged in hostility against Japan before. It goes back to the time when Japanese hereditary commanders virtually ruled the nation, the shoguns. The fleets of America, Britain, France and the Netherlands in 1864 combined in their quest to gain western trade access to Japan, settled quickly by flaunting a formidable force the shoguns could never vanquish. Later, the Japanese will seek to revise trade and other treaties which it claims to have signed under duress. Meanwhile... Japanese, keen to catch up on foreign technology, begin their own industrial revolution by foreign trade and united by restoring power to the monarchy. Japan emerges as a modern state. So much is set aside as victors celebrate the end to World War II and, hopefully, of atomic attack for all time hereafter. It's a murderous weapon of unlimited potential. Its horror must never be forgotten. After sheer luxury, enjoying the comfort of accommodation in the heart of the city, we're back to reality. Another night on a small railway station bench, on the platform at Nishiririta, when Matsura Railway Company links to a short branch line. Its quaint railway runs an ornate single-carriage motor train. Mist swirls around before dark. We think our intention to be undercover, away from the elements, is a good idea. Until we're greeted by an impressively uniformed security guard. However, he's friendly enough, there to lock up and happy to talk. He approves our request to shelter overnight here, so we move to the platform to patiently await the last train. Once it's gone, the platform's ours, deserted. We spread out our sleeping bags to enjoy a good night's sleep, sure to awake before the first train arrives in tomorrow's chilly autumn dawn. As may happen on Japan's fractured subterranean rock formations, as it may at any time in New Zealand, 
there's a devastating earthquake. It hits where we've been but a few weeks before. The memorial to the 65 Australian prisoners of war who died cruelly at Joisu, victims of Japanese war crimes, jolts to a magnitude 7 earthquake in an adjoining prefecture. It strikes just before 6 o'clock local time. It's a Saturday night, 2004. Nearly as strong, another quake, 16 minutes later, sends shockwaves that shunt the surface more than a metre sideways along an active fault line. Its Niigata epicentre lies 12 kilometres under the city. On mountainsides it loosens landslides that, carving paths of destruction below, collapses homes. Falling masonry is to blame for many of 68 lives lost in the earthquake and about 4,800 victims injured. Damage done to the traditional village of Yamakoshi is so severe it justifies evacuating an entire village for its repair. Long debated is the potential disaster if a speedy bullet train derails in an earthquake. Nearly directly above the epicenter is one of Japan's speedy bullet trains. That fear is justified when it happens to one nearly above the quake's epicenter. It's hardly moving at the time. Eight of ten carriages do derail, the first such incident in a 40-year history of Japan's bullet trains. Curiously, sophisticated sensors to detect danger don't stop the train as designed to do. Perhaps that's because the train is virtually on top of the epicenter. We wonder whether the 7th century temple bells in the nearby city of Nagano, on which the world peace bells are modelled, have survived yet another shake. We who live in Christchurch realised the worry of severe earthquakes, not knowing when the next might strike. Having found a platform to sleep on last night, ready to be up and away before train commuters arrive to go to work, we have time to gather some impressions of the city of Shimonoseki by cycling near the foreshore. We watch as ships pass in the mist. We view a row of replica cannons on wooden wheels, these are reminders of the real ones that faced the foreign fleets trying to open Japanese ports to Western trade long ago. We are to experience a novel form of cycling, not by bridge, ferry or raft, to get across the Camon Strait. It won't take long. We're feeling elated at our progress so far. The 2,356 kilometres cycled in Honshu in 44 days. Separating us is the Strait of Camon. We'll see for ourselves how innovative the Japanese are, finding affordable ways to solve transport issues. We're in the southern city of Shimonoseki, cycling to the side of the strait. Across the other side we see Kyushu. Engineers divide a novel way to offer cyclists and pedestrians an easy access under the strait. We load our bikes and ourselves into the lift at Shimonoseki. This descends to a tunnel. Cyclists and pedestrians then go a kilometre at their own pace, under the sea. At the other end, we take a similar lift up to land level. We're now on Kyushu Island. We ride off, looking for a coffee lounge to celebrate our unusual crossing. The four larger islands of Japan are now all linked by tunnel or bridges. We look forward to the mix of mountains and undulating uplands that offer new horizons. The island of Kyushu. Spruced up our touring bikes, looking good for our foray into the next city, Fukuoka. A central hotel is happy to stow our bicycles behind locked gates 
and once showered with a change of clothes, we dine out, sampling the local cafe cuisine and a beverage for which the island is known, chocha. Potato wine, once seen as the poor man's sake, brewed in three versions, kumra, wheat, or barley, on ice it goes down a treat. The kumra kind, especially. Haliko worries about the redness round, where, having lost my balance while at a standstill on the bike, I fell over, gashing my leg. We don't want germs infecting it. That would really wreck our bicycle ride. It's then that Haliko spots Tanaki Clinic, where locals queue for medical care. Dr. Kimio Tanaka, who once practiced in Britain, speaks English well. After leaving the wound for some days to heal, he oversees the stitches for removal, a delicate process. Nurses in white uniform commend Harlico for her beautifully shaped tanned legs from 3,000 kilometers pedaling. The same might not be said of mine, what with stitches and all. I'm impressed that the surgical procedure in Japan costs no more than should an ordinary consultation with one's GP in New Zealand. Removing those stitches so soon trusts nature to complete the healing of the wound going on beneath bandages to protect it from knocks. We arrive at Nagasaki in heavy rain, glad to have our comfortable tatami room in the YHA to go to. Next day is for Nagasaki, an attractive city with violent human history. From its natural harbour, we ascend Nishizaka Hill with its monument to 26 Christians crucified in the crackdown on the faith in 1597, cruelly executed on the orders of the then absolute ruler of Japan, Shogun Toyotomi Hideyoshi. In the city's atomic bomb museum, the exhibits emphasize the Westerners' guilt in wiping out more than 73,000 people in the instant of the second atomic explosion. On August the 9th, 1945, apart from the people, the blast demolished Asia's largest church, Urakami Cathedral, of which the southern wall is since reconstructed. I'm forever unable to comprehend why humankind elects to go on building even greater weapons of mass destruction. Heartened by improvement in my healing, we resume our ride in rain towards Nagasaki. In the vicinity, I note, for the first time on our journey, steeples of Christian architecture. Churches blend in easily with a nation brimming with temples or shrines of Shinto and Buddhist belief. Along this seaboard came western ships as long ago as 1542, with missionaries bringing from the Portuguese enclave of Macau more than the Bible, but also clocks, carpets, and guns. Their hopes of winning converts to this new faith found no favor, however, among the ruling shogunate, an elite of Japan family dynasties following feudal traditions. From 1635, they permitted trade only through a single Dutch settlement at Nagasaki, and no ordinary Japanese could travel abroad. It leads to Japan for more than 200 years, closing its door to the rest of the world. This policy comes to an end in 1853 with the United States Navy Squadron commanded by Commodore Perry entering Yokohama Harbor, proclaiming the American ultimatum, demanding Japan's ports be open to foreign trade. There's a touch of the old world in the taking the sands that accounts for why people swarm to the seaside spa town of Ibusuki famous for its beauty restoring hot sands warmed by subterranean heat 
from under nearby Mount Kaimandaki. In a nearby information desk, a pleasant woman, on learning our intention, doubts we'll ever make it by bicycle to reach our day's destination. It's very mountainous. Take a bus, she advises. We find a road tunnel that seems little used. It's ideal for bicycles to bypass an awkward section of hills. If it weren't so narrow, it leaves hardly enough space for cars to pass us. Hard-sell retailers put products protruding onto the pavement, where my bicycle pannier sideswipes a display, activating an irate proprietor. Avoiding a tree growing in the footpath, I make a fast escape to the roadway. With hazards on all sides, I can't wait to exit these cities before they crush each other. My enduring impression of Yahata, also known as Kizakyushu, will be of frail pedestrians pressured by the throng of people who surround them, yet offered no help, not even for the old and blind, by anyone. Whether walking as they are, or cycling as we do through several cities, it's oppressive. It's as if each city, as it expands, creates, with its neighbour, a continuous urban juggernaut along Kyushu's north coast. We feel we're not welcome to ride on the roads of Kyushu. Contrasting entirely with the rural roads of Japan's northern island of Hokkaido, nothing could be so starkly different. We must be entering one of Kyushu's industrial zones, Dense industrial development makes an ugly scar on the environment. Yet Japanese business embraced the chance to go to the consumers with products they demand. The factories doing so create an urban jungle where motorists have little sympathy for cyclists. We're tooted at, scurry to a footpath crowded with pedestrians where the way becomes too narrow, hounded by horns and assailed by no-cycling signs. It's hard to find even the space to legally park a bicycle. There must be a better side to humanity, and we aim to find it. Beginning with a local YHA of the Youth Hostels Association, it's hostels certainly not for the infirm. Up a very steep street, with our bikes, gear and convenience store shopping adding to the load, we struggle up a narrow street overlooking the chaotic world of business below. From a few hundred metres up, the contrast is complete. Down there, everyone seems frantic. Up here's quiet and friendly. The youth hostels, everything that the city downtown is not. Harlico and I explore the city's expansive Chinatown before heading to a youth hostel travelling by tram. It's thanks to this tramway company with the mechanical parts needed for our heritage trams to keep running in Christchurch. Back to the bikes next day. We're heading for an impressive volcano, 1,360-metre Mount Unzen, a stratovolcano blamed for Japan's worst-ever volcanic event. In 1792, it explodes, killing an estimated 15,000, triggering pyroclastic lava flows, earthquake, landslide and tsunami, all linked in a sequence of events. In 1991... Lava erupts again from Mount Unzen. Pyroclastic flows are videoed for the first time on camera continuously, making Mount Unzen a mecca for media. Some foreign camera crews behave badly by breaking and entering evacuated homes to use residents' phones, for example, to update news of the erupting volcano. 
It kills 43, including volcanologists, radio and TV reporters, police officers, taxi drivers, firemen, even farmers who fail to flee, scalding hot gas, ash and lava expelled as molten magma rises inside the volcano, comparatively quiet for now. It's still able to erupt again at any time. No one knows if or when. Tonight, we take our chances, staying at the local youth hostel in the small city of Shimabara. Here, the eruption had set off a landslide that slumps into the sea, sending a tsunami all but engulfing Shimabara in a 100-meter wall of water. Next day, Shimabara Peninsula's calm as we wheel our bikes aboard a fast ferry across the bay to our appointment with a newspaper reporter from nearby Kumamoto. His questions mostly relate to how we survive cycle touring with all Japan's typhoons tearing across the coast into the highlands. As it happens, that's the choice we're now confronting. From Kumamoto, two ways go to our ultimate destination in the south. We may take the road directly up into the highlands or a longer route around the coast. Whichever we choose, there's no going back. The scene now before us, a spectacular gorge has us hemmed in. Studying our topographical map, we see at least 50 kilometers remain to reach the next town. Harleko says she can make it, but doubts I will. I'm too slow. Oh, that's a challenge. Uncharacteristically, I take the lead deep into the gorge. It takes us twisting up a very scenic road between mountains. We look over the river to see, on the other side, precariously hugging the hillside, the Hisatsu Railway. In high-spirited determination, I keep up the pace throughout afternoon sunshine into the cool of the evening. We make it, just before nightfall, to Hitoyoshi. On the far side of town, we find a deserted park. Out of view, we set up camp. In darkness now, and leaving everything ready for later, we cycle unladen into town. There we'll find if there's an onsen to freshen up after our journey and enjoy a meal. In the next village is an onsen for each sex. Going our separate ways there, we'll make a time to meet afterwards, allowing us roughly 40 minutes in the onsen. Occasionally, women are cleaning the men's dressing rooms and get into some sort of conversation. I hear some onsens are unsegregated, but we've not struck any on our trip. On waking, we realize we're now close to our objective, the southern extremity of Japan on the island of Kyushu. As usual, we fold our tent in the park and make for a convenience store both to buy and then enjoy breakfasting outside. To our surprise, a convoy turns up, the Civil Defense Force, among the soldiers rushing around, some set about placing chocks on the wheels of a dozen or more vehicles of their convoy, despite it being stopped on a level public car park. As we ride away on our own route, the road suddenly takes us from the floor of a valley, spiralling upward into deteriorating weather. It's impressive, the engineering near the summit which leads to a tunnel under the Horikiri Pass, then a steep descent delivers us down a series of rural roads during our afternoon cycling through villages doing things differently from the north. The covered burial grounds and style of grave marking portrayed at the gravesite, the deceased reflect images of friendly faces that look more Polynesian than Japanese. 
We pass more shabby love hotels. Though the interiors remain a mystery to us, Harlequin gets enough of a glance to note what they charge. The fee for the allotted two hours is 2,820 yen. That's about 35 New Zealand dollars. As we're now cycling a diminishing distance to our destination, I'm imagining how it must have been for the first who travelled this way. A tradition grows up round 17th century travelling poets. One of them, Matsuo Bashu, exchanges the privileged life of a samurai warrior to wander Japan in the decade before he dies at the age of 50, having abandoned the military life to become a teacher and creator of the Japanese form of verse, known as haiku. His lonely wandering, pondering the puzzle of human existence earned him respect as the traveller's poet laureate. Basho's most likely the first scribe to say that a journey is itself a destination, and on this day fate dictates we should call it a day to escape heavy rain by booking a room in a business hotel at Kokubu on Kagoshima Bay. It's very volcanic with falling ash periodically showering this and other cities in the vicinity. It's clearing by next morning. Following the coast, we had decided to camp overnight on the shores of Kagoshima Bay. We climb steeply to find an onsen and rediscover the joy of feeling clean, to shop at a convenience store, spread out our purchases on grass at the foreshore while admiring the sea view. Thankfully, free of human rubbish. The bays nevertheless littered in naturally formed pumice expelled from the volcano and floating ashore. Inland from our impromptu camp are steep grassy green hills. As evening nears, dark clouds form in the dimming light, caught in lurid light of sunset, one of the most dramatic I've witnessed. My camera rolls through negative film that should yield lots of slides worth projecting. We're about to drop off to sleep when we hear the first rise. A storm rages, bathing the bay in lightning. Thunder heralds heavy raindrops delivered directly from above our tent. At first the rain bounces from the grass, then soaks into sand, leaving it soft to our tread as we check the tent is firmly fastened down. In the small hours we slumber, oblivious to the storm moving away. On waking, we see a sky looking promising. We're within striking distance of our goal and could afford to relax, contemplating an easy day's ride to Satamisaki, guarding the entrance to Kagoshima Bay. We set off, pausing at small produce shops along the way. One proprietor kindly presents us with some of his mandarins. By mid-morning we're on a road to take us through Sata Village inland, up and downhill, till we're a mere eight kilometres from completing our journey. There's a snag. That final stretch is a private road, a toll road, but bicycles don't qualify. The company owning the road, locked in a dispute of some kind with the local authority, claims the route's dangerous to cyclists. The little-used road meanders over steep, forested hills perfect for cycling, but the staff at the toll booth can't be convinced of that. In the circumstances, our only way to reach the end of the road at Satamisaki's going to be by bus. Through all our cycling, we've imagined more of a finale to the trip than this. It's our 69th day on the road, 
The cyclometers record us pedalling 3,777 kilometres, all told so far. It's incredibly frustrating, having to leave our bicycles while awaiting the bus by an inconspicuous bus stop. Surprisingly, given its southernmost status, Satomisaki is not promulgated as an attractive pilgrimage for tourists. I imagine a mariner chancing upon this coast, impressed to see one of the world's most attractive scenes. The reality is, despite it being a weekend, the bus carries no passengers besides us. By taking the easy option, I feel I'm letting the Kiwi side down. At least we've come in clear weather to witness what for us is this geographic wonder, regardless of our bikes being denied us. We linger a while taking in the scene. There's the lighthouse a Scott built in the 1870s as Japan ports open to foreign trade, the lighthouse to guide ships into this deep inlet of the East China Sea. It's thousands of years ago immense pressure of molten magma explodes a caldera like Lake Topo. Seawater rushes in to fill the crater we call Kagoshima Bay. Should we have secretly ridden the Soya-Misaki section of road after nightfall? Harlequin, however, is raised with the maxim, rules are not made to be broken. Blandly we pay up 750 yen each, that's nine New Zealand dollars each, for the bus ride, plus 100 yen to walk the track, that's $1.20 each. Denying cyclists access to scenic attractions like this isn't ideal for public relations. Cycling those last eight kilometres could pose no greater risk than the usual perils of sharing any road with careless or inconsiderate motorists. Though one bizarre encounter arises on that road, it's when we resume the road to return whence we came, with our bicycles patiently awaiting our return by the bus stop. On rounding a corner on a steep descent, we both go for the brakes to avoid two monkeys, both as big as humans, who hadn't heard us coming, as happy to get away from them as they from us. Rather than stop, we make a spirited dash along the beautiful Kagoshima Bay with the sunset behind the volcano Mount Kaimundaki. Last I glimpse of monkeys is them bounding over the road and leaping up over a high fence. After the unexpected turn of events visiting the Cape during the day, we have now completed our cycling mission to the far south of Japan. Its almost tropical climate is not surprising, since in the southern hemisphere it's on the same line of latitude north as the Kermadec Islands are south, ideal for camping out as we do at the same beach as the night before. On these shores of Kagoshima Bay thrive as many as 28 different native tree species. No other campers near. It's lonely to lie under the stars here with a sense of disappointment at not literally peddling the last of the distance to the Cape. Young aviators of both sides, knowing these were once hostile skies, fought to bring each other down or bomb to oblivion the ground beneath our feet. We walk to another monument to human devastation, an atomic bomb museum commemorating the dropping of Fat Man, the second atomic bomb that devastates a second Japanese target, Nagasaki, before bringing about the unconditional surrender of Japan to the Allied forces. But at what cost? More than 73,000 Japanese die in that initial flash, 
Thousands more will succumb to their injuries in the attack. Others linger the rest of their lives, bearing the burns and cancers that come in an atomic attack. Thanks for listening to Historic Souvenirs, the intrepid journeys of Roy Sinclair and his partner Harlico, represented in the book Pedal Power. Another edition of this will be the same time next week on Free FM, proudly supported by New Zealand On Air. Sleepless nights by firelight The stranger in this town Goodbye talking For more episodes, use the accessmedia.nz app for iOS and Android devices. Or subscribe to this podcast via Spotify, iHeartRadio, or Apple Podcasts. This free FM podcast was brought to you with support from New Zealand On Air.